Crush your menopause sugar cravings just in time for summer with all-natural Bossa Bars Menopause Energy Bars. They're delicious keto and intermittent fasting-friendly bars created to help women manage weight loss and energy during the challenging stages of the pause. Try them at bossabars.com. That's B-O-S-S-A bars.com and save 10% with code HOTCOOL10. Welcome to Hot Flashes and Cold Topics podcast, the voice for women in midlife and beyond. At Hot Flashes and Cold Topics, we talk about anything and everything to do with midlife. My name is Bridget. And I'm Colleen. And today we have Dr. Stephanie Sarkis on. She's a PhD and she's also a best-selling author. And she's an expert in ADHD and anxiety disorders, autism spectrum disorders, and chronic pain. And, and her latest book is Healing from Toxic Relationships, 10 Essential Steps to Recover from Gaslighting, Narcissism, and Emotional Abuse. And this was such a great conversation and such a great book. It surely validates when people are, I have to excuse everybody, I have a cold, so I may sound like Kermit the Frog. <laughs> yes, but, um, yeah, yeah, I'm not with Kermit today. It's still calling. Yes, exactly. But yes, validates what you, you know, when you're thinking that you might be with a narcissist or have a relationship with a narcissist, that it is true. And I was really fascinated when she talked about that there are um, apps for um, child drop off and pick up, you know, when you're dealing with a narcissistic ex-spouse and they're trying to play games with you, there are like apps out there. That wow. goes straight to recording, you know, documents. If you have a problem, and you have to go to court. Things like that are really helpful. And she tells us about like what to do, how to get out of them. So really wonderful and informative ways of dealing with toxic relationships. Just I learned so much from talking to her and her book. Just when, you know, having the family court, the lawyers that deal with this, that specialize in this, yeah. it is really, it boils down to control. And it was fascinating for me to hear about people in the, what I was in, I was a teacher and people who are teachers and in service industries or nurses or someone in healthcare that are caring type of people kind of can be targets for this kind of behavior because we're just kind of dating what to look at right when you're dating online versus meeting in person there are a lot of pieces of information that she shares that are really helpful another reason why my voice sounds like Kermit is because last week Bridget and I hosted an event in New York called the Marvelous Mrs. Menopause, which was a huge success. Thank you to every person who came to see us. It was great visiting people in person. Oh, we yes. First went to a CEO summit on menopause that Stacey London hosted the day before, which was amazing. There were like 17 CEOs, lots of people that we knew and got to, you know, we had met by Zoom, but we yes. never got to meet in person. And then we hosted an event at on the 74th floor of the Freedom Tower One World Trade Center, which the view was incredible. And, and thank right. you to all of our panelists who just shared information on menopause and midlife. And we got such a great response that Bridget and I are really energized, although it doesn't sound like I am. <laughs> she um, is. I promise. We were so excited. Yes. She and is. just really energized to do more in 2023. So we would ask our listeners, if you get a chance, email us at hotflashescooltopics at gmail.com. Let us know what you'd like to see in a midlife or menopause event. 
And we're going to try to put some together for next year. And now we're going to talk to Dr. Stephanie Sarkis. Welcome back to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics. Today we have on Stephanie Sarkis, who is a psychotherapist, and she specializes in ADHD, anxiety, and narcissistic behavior. And her last two books really kind of made us stop and say, hmm, we need to have her on the show to talk about gaslighting and toxic relationships. So welcome to the show, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me. Your most recent book is called Healing from Toxic Relationships, 10 Essential Steps to Recover from Gaslighting, Narcissism, and Emotional Abuse. And I guess my first question is gaslighting and narcissism, what are they and what are they, how are they different? So gaslighting is a form of emotional abuse, which is part of domestic violence. And that's where you are trying to convince somebody that their version of reality is not correct. And what that does is it gives you power and control over someone. So they rely on your version of reality rather than their own. And then narcissism, if we look at, at the, the kind of continuum of narcissism, you know, everybody's probably got some narcissistic traits at some time. But when you get to the end of that spectrum where you're having that behavior as a majority of your behavior most of the day, then you may qualify for a diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder. And that's usually typified by uh, you think that you are superior to people. Uh, you feel like you have, uh, you need special treatment compared to other people. And there's different kinds of narcissists. There's a covert narcissist says which is kind of the sneakier one that you don't really pick up on right away. They may do a lot of, oh, everyone's out to get me and you know nobody at work realizes how wonderful I am. And they may act like, or tell even tell you that they're pious and they have like high standards. But when you set boundaries with them, they go into what's called narcissistic rage. And then you have the overt narcissists, which is the narcissist we usually think of because those are the narcissists that we can kind of see coming, right? So those are the people that are more flashy and into, you know, notice me kind of behavior. So it's covert and overt, but it's usually typified by my, my boundaries and my needs are much more important than anybody else's. Everyone else has a problem and I'm fine. That's called an ego syntonic personality. When you think that you're fine, everyone else is the one with the problem. And that's why people with NPD tend to not come in for therapy because they think everyone else needs to change, not them. The only time that they will come in is if they bring in their partner and they'll say in, in you know, certain words, you need to fix this person. That, that is so interesting. I, You know, what I found in your book from your very most recent book, The Healing from Toxic Relationships, is that there's so many different types of relationships that you can, that could be toxic and you could be gaslit in. And, you know, some of them were work, family, your spouse relationship, friends. I, I was just really amazed when I listened to your book. And then can you share a little bit about just some examples from each of those? Sure. So I, an employer will uh, try to keep you alone at work. So they will set up the work environment so that you're the only one there. So you have no witnesses. They will tell you a certain assignments do. When you complete that assignment, they say, no, no, that's not what I asked you to do because they're trying to sabotage your career. And maybe they have someone they want for that position. So they're going to try and push you out. Um, you have coworkers that may mess around the items on your desk and then tell you, no, that never happened. They may break into your computer. Uh, you have uh, parents that will have a golden child and a scapegoat, meaning they have a child that can do no wrong and a child that can do no right. And those roles flip based on who the parent thinks is being loyal to them. And what I mean by loyalty isn't what what we would think of as loyalty. It's more that you need to fulfill my needs, but I'm not going to be fulfilling your needs. 
So if there's a child that says no to the parent, that child becomes a scapegoat. And then the other child becomes the golden child. And that can lead to some lifetime issues between and that turns into sibling issues where you have these very confusing roles of one child was treated poorly, one child was treated well, and that flip-flopped and that can turn into some issues later on with their adult relationships. And then there's romantic relationships where you have a lot of power and control dynamics. So you're love bombed in the beginning. You're told that you're the best thing ever and who doesn't want to hear that? Uh, but then the abuse starts creeping in. It's a gradual process. And people ask me, how come someone wouldn't know this right away? It's because this type of person covers it up so well. They tell you all the things you want to hear. They tell you how great you are. And they tell you that you're the best person that, that they've ever met. And if you ever hear that, that's a red flag. If you're the best person that they've ever met and it's halfway into a dinner date, you need to leave because that's a real tip off that this person is, does not have your best interest in mind. And then once the love bombing phase is over, then they start picking at you. And that's where the verbal and emotional abuse come in. And then that can ramp up into physical abuse. You also mentioned that they kind of want you to move in quickly and be like basically beholden to them. And can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So you meet this person the first time and one of the tip offs is maybe their online profile does not match who they are. That's a big red flag because narcissists and sociopaths really prey on online dating and they create a profile that they think matches what someone is looking for. And they will prey on people that may have been grieving. So they've had a loss of a spouse or other grief. Uh, they prey on people in helping professions because they figure those people are going to be more um, accepting of a different range of behavior. And uh, they prey on people that they feel might have lower self-esteem. So what they do is they will zone in on those people and then they'll start pushing They'll say, you know, well, we need to move in together. I just feel this instant connection with you. And, and I heard a really good quote that chemistry, instant chemistry is also, uh, those are warning signs. That that instant, like, I'm connected to you stuff is, is a warning. That a healthy relationship builds over time. You grow emotional intimacy. So in an unhealthy relationship, if you're with this toxic person, the person may ask you very personal questions on your first date. They may ask you, you know, what's your darkest, you know, fear or what's your biggest loss in life? And they're not doing that to build emotional intimacy with you. They're building that to collect ammunition or they're asking you to build, um, they're asking you those questions to gather ammunition on you. So what happens is if you say, well, you know, my relationship with my sister, I really wish that we would get along better, but we don't talk that much. When you get into an argument with them, I'm almost guaranteed they will bring up, well, no wonder your sister doesn't talk to you or no wonder your sister can't stand you. So they do not build emotional intimacy to build emotional intimacy. They do it to gain access to your sensitive spots because they know that they can exploit those. You may also see someone that is at a restaurant, they're rude to wait staff. Uh, they, I had a friend that uh, went on a date with a woman that um, her steak was undercooked and she started screaming at the, the waiter at, to the point where he was crying. And he said, oh, well, I thought she was being assertive. I go, no, 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 that's not being assertive. That's, that's, being, that's being mean and nasty. And so we need to look at how are these people treating other people around them? So that's a real tip off. Look at how they treat the wait staff. I have always heard that is you mm -hmm. find out how they treat the wait staff is such a signal of what kind of person they are. Yes. <laughs> and I am a former wait staff person. So <laughs> I am I I am overboard. <laughs> nice to the wait mm -hmm. staff. And another interesting thing that I love the term that you gave uh this term, hoovering people back in. That right. when you've gained the strength, can you share a little bit about what hoovering people back in as sure. So when you have someone that has this type of personality, they need attention focused 
from them. They are constantly seeking how to fill that what's called a narcissistic void or this bottomless pit of attention seeking. So when they're in a relationship and the relationship starts getting, you know, what they think is stale, they will move on to someone else. They usually have a rotation of exes going because it's easier for them to go back to old narcissistic supply rather than to get new narcissistic supply. But if you leave, that enacts their kind of panic mode. So they will do whatever it takes to bring you back in. And so they will say to you things like they'll do future faking, which means that they will say to you, well, you know, that trip that I, you know, I want to take you on, why don't we do that next month? Or, you know, oh, well, I really, I want to commit now. I've really decided I want to do that. But then once you get back in the relationship, all of a sudden that changes. And they'll say things like, well, you know, I didn't schedule that vacation because, you know, some of your behavior you've had since we got back together, I don't want to go on vacation with you. So all of a sudden it changes up. So they take away whatever they did to lure you back in. They will also try to get family and friends to reel you back in. So they will have what are called flying monkeys. Those are named after the Wicked Witch of the West and Wizard of Oz and flying monkeys and send messages. So you'll have someone say to you, well, you know, he or she really misses you and they really wish you were back and they're so sad. And so you wind up contacting that person. So it's really important when you run into people that you have in common, if they start talking about your former partner, that you say, yeah, that's a no-fly zone. We're not going to go there. And it may be that you have to walk away if they keep pushing. Sometimes flying monkeys know that they're being used as a way to transmit messages. Sometimes they don't. But either way, you don't need to listen to it. So it's really important to kind of enforce your boundaries. But when you're with someone like this in a relationship, they work at picking apart your boundaries. So you probably have had really good boundaries. You just had somebody that was systematically dismantling them. Right. And that also happens at, at in work situations as well. Yes. I mean, yes. And, and, you know, you gave some great examples in your book about the boss may say they, that they want you back in. And then when you're back and you agree, then they, well, we're not going to do that project or I've right. changed my mind about this. And Oh, that raise, we can't do that anymore. Another example you give in your book is how people will diminish what's happening to them. So can you share just a little bit of how people do that? Sure. Well, particularly if you grew up in a family that you had dysfunctional parents. So let's say your parents had an active addiction or they had narcissistic tendencies. You may grow up thinking that this is the way that people are treated. So when you get into a relationship or you're in a workplace where something doesn't feel right, you're more likely to go, oh, you know what? That's just how people act. That's, that's, you know, how things go. One, in fact, is pretty pathological. So it's normalizing and saying, you know what, maybe I am being too sensitive. Cause that's usually one of the first things that, that these people will take out of their bag and say, you're too sensitive. You can't take a joke. Uh, you know, why are you so uptight? And so people start believing that and going, well, maybe I am the issue, especially when if you get hired on a workplace and you're told, hey, what a great fit you are for this job, that you're the best interviewer ever. We're just a big happy family. And then, they start kind of finding faults with your work, we naturally blame ourselves and go, well, we must have done something because they were happy in the beginning. So why are they doing this now? So it's very easy to slide into that self-blame when in fact you've got someone that's, that's purposefully trying to manipulate you into backing down and giving up those boundaries. I know you've said before that anyone is vulnerable to a narcissistic relationship, whether it be personal or professional, but are there some people, maybe because like you just said of their upbringing or just personality that are more vulnerable? I think you bring up a really good point. Like I mentioned, you know, no one is immune to this. Anyone can, um, can be susceptible to this type of personality because they're so good at 
getting deep into your psyche and finding those things you're vulnerable about. So, uh, but if you, again, have been through a grief loss period, um, you are more vulnerable. Uh, if you have any medical condition, if you have depression, anxiety, ADHD, chronic illness, you are more likely to be vulnerable to them um, because they exploit that. For instance, I work with people that have ADHD and they will have their partner hide their items, items of high sentimental and monetary value. They'll hide them and then say, well, you know, if you weren't so ADHD, you'd be able to hold on to your stuff. I have to take care of all your things because you can't do it. Or, you know, you can't take care of all the money because you have ADHD. So you, so you need to turn all your accounts to me. And that's happened in quite a few cases. So uh, they will exploit whatever they feel that you have a weakness in. Uh, and again, people in helping professions, uh, medical, teaching, um, anything where you're doing a service job for other people, uh, because we tend to have a wider range of what we consider acceptable. We tend to look for the potential of someone rather than where they're at. And that's, that can be kind of a downfall. It's good to be hopeful and know that people can change. I mean, I wouldn't be in the business I was in unless I thought people could change. But we also sometimes describe that to people in relationships. And we say, well, you know, they have potential. They, you know, they could be the person I need them to be. Instead, we need to look at who someone is right now. That's very important. Are they meeting your needs now? And what I recommend is that people write down what they're looking for in a partner or what they're looking for in a job. And when you start getting that excitement of, oh, I think I met the person or I think I found the perfect job, look back at that list and have the logical part of your brain take over and see if they really meet the criteria of what you're looking for. Because especially when you meet someone that you get those sparks with, your logical brain kind of shuts down a little bit. So it's important to look back at that list and see, do they really fit what I'm looking for? Is this what's best for me in my life? And, you know, um, so many people just fall into this. They maybe don't see what's happening to them. But your book has some really great suggestions and just things that you can do when you are in a situation like this. And so it, it can be so many different situations. It could be dangerous and physical, and you could have children involved. But you had, you know, some really great steps that people can take. And can you just share a few of those? I know you mentioned like blocking people's phone numbers. Mm -hmm. And and you just mentioned some too with the flying monkeys with um, if the people are bringing up the person that you want to get away from and you just say, that's a no-fly zone. And if they keep bringing up, you just walk away. (laughs) So could you share any other tips for people in those situations? Sure. If you're co-parenting with someone, do a consultation with a good family law attorney that has experience in working with people that are married to high conflict co-partners. Um, that's really important or they have, they have co-parenting with people that are unreasonable. Uh, good family law attorneys will know the ins and outs of that narcissistic personality style because they've, they've been to trial or they've been in mediation with someone like that. Uh, that is very important just to know what your rights are, and what your kids' rights are. And you can do that even before you leave just to know, you know, should I leave the house or they need to leave the house? I mean, that stuff is really important. Uh, when you create a parenting plan with a co-parent, it needs to be as detailed as possible. Uh, this type of person will look for any wiggle room. So if you're supposed to exchange the kids at 6 and at you know by 6.30, you're able to go home and the custody reverts to you because they haven't shown up, they'll show up at like 6.29 and 59 seconds. Like they will, they will do, you know, they'll fly under the radar and do just enough to irritate you that still fits the parenting plan. So you need to get as strict of a parenting plan as possible. Exactly when the kids are going to be dropped off, when they're picked up, do you need to do curbside drop-off, which means nobody goes inside each other's houses? Do you need to have exchange with family members rather than with the two of you? Because, you know, that might cause issues. So it's really important to get a detail 
detailed parenting plan and good family law attorney can help you set that up. I also have worked with parents that just speak to the other parent through a co-parenting app because talking on the phone or doing email just is not a good idea because the other person's so volatile. And co-parenting apps will mark down, you know, when the person received the message, when they read it, you can upload receipts if you split costs of things. So that's a way that you can keep things really kind of together and in one location uh, because you will have a co-parent that says, well, no, I messaged you on this and why didn't you get it? And you know that becomes the story instead of the issue at hand. Uh, also reconnecting with healthy people in your life uh, because the person that you're with has, has systematically isolated you from them by telling you, you know, everybody thinks you're crazy or your sister or brother, they don't talk to you anymore because you're crazy. And, you know, I have more power than you. So, you know, what are you going to do about it? Everybody's going to believe me and not you. So it's really important that you reach out to those people. Even if you feel kind of awkward about reconnecting, you don't have to say why you're reconnecting. You can just say, Hey, you know what? I know we haven't talked in a while and I, I miss talking to you. I'd really like to reconnect. But also be aware that those people that you had in your past, some of them may wind up not being healthy because now you have a better view of what's pathology in people, what's healthy, normal behavior, and what's unhealthy. And so you may notice that some people that you were good friends with that you realize, wait a second, maybe they're not so healthy for me. And that can be a tough thing to face that, that now you've realized, oh, this person, this person may not be the best for me. So one of the things I also recommend is go out and volunteer. There are a lot of studies showing that volunteering increases self-esteem, it decreases depression and anxiety, it gives you a goal, it helps you uh, reconnect with your community, helps you meet new people. And that's really helped a lot of people move forward in their lives and heal is by having a, a new focus. What happens when, let's say you are divorced from a narcissistic spouse, but now you have adult children and one of them has shown signs of narcissistic behavior. How do you set those boundaries with your children? Because you can't go no contact unless you wanted to, but most of us would not go no contact with our children. What do you suggest for women who feel like, I think I just raised a narcissistic child? Well, know that that can be a, a pretty common thing when you've had a narcissistic co-parent, that the child can pick up some of the behaviors. And sometimes that, that child may actually have a personality disorder, but sometimes they have what are called fleas, uh, which means that they've picked up some of the characteristics of the narcissistic parent. But uh, but they don't meet criteria for a diagnosis. So it's called fleas. It's like you lay down with a dog, you get fleas. Um, and th that saying is that if you have a parent that's dysfunctional, you're more likely to also carry signs of that dysfunction. And some of it could be just saying to your kid, hey, you know, there's some behaviors I think that, you know, you and I really would like us to improve our relationship and maybe we can go together to a therapist, or maybe, you know, maybe you could go, I don't know if that would be helpful to you because you could say, I go to a therapist and that's helpful. Uh, but sometimes it's just supporting people and saying, you know what, I really, I, I love you, but the way you're treating me right now is not okay. And we need to set up some new ground rules. And you'll see by the way that the child reacts, you know, there may have been some parental alienation, meaning that the other parent may have, have uh, bad mouthed you or, um, said other things to align the child against you. So sometimes it just takes time and you can't force an adult to do something they don't want to do. And so that's the other thing is realizing what you have control over and what do you not have control over. And it's also honoring that kind of feeling of grief and, and like, and leaning into it and going, wow, this, this sucks. You know, that you've got an adult kid that you love more than anything, but they are distant from you or they're behaving inappropriately, but you also have to keep your boundaries. Because if you don't show that respect towards yourself, 
then that adult child will will poke holes in you and try to find ways to manipulate you. So, um, so there, yeah, no contact can be very hard to do. I have seen people do that, um, but also there's low contact, which means that if someone's treating you poorly, you have no obligation to uh, to contact them. Um, and that may mean that, you know, when you're in a social situation, if you have a family gathering that you create a limited amount of time or you um, you have someone with you that will kind of act as a buffer. So if that person, you know, comes charging towards you, that that person kind of distracts and, and moves that person away. Uh, so it's a difficult situation, especially with adult children. Uh, and sometimes those relationships heal and sometimes they don't. But a lot of it just takes time. And it's it's being patient, going, you know what, they were fed maybe some some incorrect things while they were growing up. And it's going to take some time. If it's been 18 years or 20 years of them being told something by a toxic person, it's going to take a while for that to, to reset. Another thing you brought up um, is that you felt that forgiveness was really overrated or, or just something to that extent in your book. And I loved that because, you know, we were told, oh, you, you should forgive them. Forgiving them is so healing. And then everything's fine. I know, I know. But, yeah. and I thought I loved hearing that because there are just some things that you, you just don't have to, you don't want to forgive. And right. You know, I, I know it can be healthy and, and you can heal, but can you talk a little bit about why maybe that's not necessary at all times? Sure. Because I think it's particularly in the U.S., we really push this idea of forgiveness, that you must forgive, you know, to forgive is divine and all that, and, you know, that you should get closure. Yeah, I, I like Gloria Vanderbilt's quote of closure is really overrated. You know, sometimes there are some things in life that you just do not get closure from. Uh, you are not going to have a toxic person say to you, I am so sorry I treated you that way. I take full responsibility for my behavior. That's not going to happen. So sometimes we get our own closure by, by you know, journaling has been found in studies to be very helpful. Uh, by just visualizing ourselves, you know, sending a person away and visualizing, you know, what we want our lives to look like on our own. Um, and then you also have that forgiveness idea of, you know, the idea of forgiveness is that you're not condoning the behavior, but you're kind of giving up the thought that the past could be any different. And for some people, you know, it's forgiveness is something that comes pretty easily, but it's a multi-layered process. It takes time and you don't necessarily have to forgive in order to go on to have a happy, healthy life. I think forgiveness and closure are overrated. Uh, and some things, you know, we, we, there are things that people do to each other that are so severe and, and terrible that it's totally understandable if someone is not into uh, forgiveness or closure. And I think that, um, and I would just say if there's therapists listening, that we need to be really careful when we're working with people that we don't push our own stuff about closure and forgiveness on people, that everybody gets that on their own time frame, and sometimes they don't get to closure and forgiveness, and that's okay. And that's kind of a radical thing um, that a lot of people don't talk about, that you can go on a happy, healthy life and not, you know, get quote unquote closure from someone. It may be radical, but I think there are so many people that just kind of let out a sigh of relief because mm -hmm. they've been told over and over, forgive, move on. Move right. on. And, and they can't get past that point, but maybe saying, okay, I'm not necessarily going to forgive this. But I can, you know, put it on the shelf it needs to be and move on mm -hmm. can be freeing for a lot of people. So I think it's, a, it's it can. really important. And mm -hmm. lean into those feelings. I mean, that's the other thing is we don't like feeling yuck. 
And I think that's a normal human reaction. But I think that sometimes, you know, when we feel like somebody's wronged us, I mean, a lot of people that are in those relationships grew up in a family where you didn't feel feelings. You had to stuff them down. Uh, you had to be as small as possible to not interrupt what your parents' needs were. So it can feel kind of scary to feel those feelings of helplessness and feelings of sadness and, and grief. And sometimes we just need to feel our feelings. We can survive our feelings. It's really important that we feel those. And if we're having a rough day, we just say to somebody, hey, you know what? I can't go out to lunch today. I'm having a rough day. And that's okay. It's okay to do less than what's humanly possible. And you're going to have some days that you just feel like curling up with a book or just watching really bad TV. And that's okay. You need to give yourself time to heal. And that means that you do what you got to do sometimes. That being said, if you feel like um, like you want to end your life, there's the 988 suicide hotline and it's nationwide now. So um, so you, it's really important to reach out for help if you feel like ending your life. Uh, but it's, it's also important that you feel your feelings of grief. And this, the grief you have from ending this kind of relationship is much more intense with another relationship because in the toxic relationship, and this applies to all forms of toxic relationships, there's a cycle you go on. There's a cycle of a buildup of, of stress and in, uh, intensity and tension, and there's an explosion. And then you go back through the cycle and then there's a reconciliation phase where the narcissist may act like nothing happened. So you have a big blow up and the next day they're acting like nothing happened at all. It's very weird because they're just acting like fine. Um, and then you have the, you know, the, the wooing phase, the hoovering, and then you go back into that fighting cycle. And every time you go into that stressful tension explosion phase, you get an increase of cortisol, which is a stress producing hormone and adrenaline. And when you go through that, reconciliation phase, you get oxytocin, the cuddling hormone, and dopamine and serotonin. So your brain is kind of hooked on this, this cycle that goes over and over again. So when that cycle stops, you kind of go through almost like a drug withdrawal because you're used to that loop. And healthy relationships can feel a little bit boring sometimes because you don't have that that roller coaster. And I'll have people say to me, you know, I met this really nice person. I don't know. There's just, I don't have a lot of chemistry. And I'm like, but you know, do you get along well? And are you attracted to them? Well, yeah, but you know, it's not like we want to rip each other's clothes off kind of thing. I'm like, well, that's not always healthy. You know, that yeah. you need to, you need to, somebody earns your vulnerability. They earn your uh, emotional intimacy. It's, it, it, you mentioned that as well. Like if you grew up in a family where there was a lot of chaos Mm -hmm. You don't know what to do when there's not chaos or like right. you just said, things seem very boring. And you did bring up a point where if you're journaling, you have to be very careful if you are in, say, a violent or a custody situation. And can you mm -hmm. share why maybe that might be the only or one of the situations where journaling you have to be very careful with? Sure. I would always consult with your attorney about uh, the legalities of this, but sometimes journals have been entered as, as evidence in, uh, in trials. So that's something you just want to watch. Um, or you'll have also the uh, toxic partner will uh, steal the journal and, and copy it um, or scan and put it online. Um, and obviously that's not allowable for them to do that. But, you know, once in the way the internet works, once something's out, it's out. Uh, so it's really important that I tell people, keep it on your devices that are are locked and change your passwords on a regular basis. Uh, because if you're living with someone that has this lack of boundaries, they will try to break into your, your accounts. Uh, and that's, I've seen that happen to several people. So, so continually change your passwords. 
You were talking about the dopamine before, and mm-hmm. a lot of people wonder why, what is this person, this narcissistic person getting out of acting this way? And mm-hmm. there is a dopamine hit. Can you t- explain a little bit about why narcissists are the way they are? Sure. So, you know, we get a dopamine boost from, you know, cuddling our, our cat and dog or playing with our kids or doing a good job at work. But people that are wired like this get a dopamine boost from controlling people. That's their high. Their high is manipulating, controlling successfully. So it's like a game to them. So it's like a cat and mouse kind of thing. So uh, so that's why there's that insatiable need for attention and to get control is because they get, a, in part, they get a brain chemical reaction from it. And I'm asked a lot about why are people like this? And I think some people are just born with bad wiring. But I think also sometimes people grow up in families where their parents are dysfunctional and they think that this is how you do relationships, that this is normalized behavior. But sometimes those people call me and they say, you know what, I I think I've been doing something that's not healthy and I think I need help. And those people generally tend to do pretty well in therapy because they acknowledge that there's an issue and they're willing to work really hard on it. But if you have someone with that egocentric personality where they say everyone else has the issue and I'm fine, that's where people generally do not seek therapy because they don't think they have a problem. So most of us have an ego dystonic personality, which means if we do something that's not congruent with our beliefs or values, we feel kind of icky about it. So if you like break into a store and rob the store, you feel like, you know what, that doesn't, that doesn't go with my values. I feel kind of guilty and have remorse about that. That's what most people would do. But this person says, you know, I had a right to do it. And they are, they're solid in their belief that they were justified in doing it. Now, regardless of how someone gets to this type of personality, they're still a hundred percent responsible for the behavior. So if someone's in a relationship with someone, you say, well, you know, they do this kind of power and control stuff because they had a bad childhood. They're still responsible for their behavior. And that does not mean you need to stay in the relationship while that person does their healing work. In fact, sometimes I tell people, I go, maybe it's good to do a trial separation, see how, how this person is doing in therapy, see if the behaviors change before you maybe reconcile. Because you don't need to hang around and have somebody continue to be abusive while they're doing their work. That's another thing you bring up is the self-care. And you were even, you were given an example. I'm not saying self-care, like going in to get a manicure or massage or something like that. It's really looking out for just your, your own well-being. I mean, can you share a little bit about that? Well, right. I think a lot of us in society are told that self-care is selfish. And Mm -hmm. I think that, um, that also toxic partners, toxic family members will say, oh, paying attention to yourself. Well, you're not paying attention to me. So therefore that's bad. Uh, But it's treating yourself like your own best friend, treating yourself with compassion and saying, you know what, what would I tell a best friend about this? You know, how would I treat myself if, if I was the most important person to me, which you are? And I think that really changes the lens that you view things in that. Yes, I do need time for myself to have five minutes just to, you know, take some deep breaths and be okay. That's self care. It's not always sitting in a bubble bath and you're having like five hours to yourself. Sometimes you get little pockets of time, but it's saying, you know what? I care about myself enough to know I need to walk away from this situation because I cannot be rational with an irrational person. And that's self-care too. And enforcing those boundaries is self-care. And, and there was a great quote from someone that said that, um, that just because someone responds to your boundaries in an inappropriate way does not mean you didn't have a right to those boundaries. Yeah. That hits home for a lot of people. Yeah. And yeah. I think, you know, a lot of our listeners, obviously midlife women and beyond, our kids are leaving home. Maybe the behaviors that we explained away from our spouse for a long time, now all of a sudden it's just the two of you. And you're like, wait a second, I'm not willing to put up with this 
any longer. Mm-hmm. If your spouse says, I don't need therapy, I am who I am, you married me, what's the first step that a, that a woman or man can do to separate themselves from that person? I think one of the first steps is to is to seek therapy. Go to a mental health professional. Make sure they're licensed in their state. Um, that's a really important piece. And if the, your partner doesn't want to go, go on your own. And sometimes when one part of the dynamic changes, so when when you are ready to move forward, then sometimes the whole dynamic changes. Um, so that's really important to get your own help because you have been impacted by this. And I know that sometimes um, that is exactly what the partner says is like, well, you married me. You knew who I was when I married you. That doesn't mean that you have to stay in it. And I think that's sometimes something that, that we tell ourselves is like, oh, I made my bed. I have to lie in it. And I have clients tell me that. Um, but you can always change your mind. You know, as a human being, you have the right to change your mind at any time. You have the right to do less than what's humanly possible. Like I mentioned, you have the right to feel safe. And those are our basic fundamental rights. But you've been with somebody that's systematically tried to take those away from you. So sometimes it really helps in counseling to get back in touch with what are my rights as a person? What do I deserve as a person how someone treats me? And it's it's a hard thing. And therapy's hard work. I mean, sometimes you get out of touch and you're like, I just need to take a nap. I mean, because it's it's hard. Right. Yeah. You mentioned how it's just not, it's you're not gonna, you know, most of the time you're not gonna leave feeling like, oh, you might, <laughs> you might feel better after immediately, right. but it can be exhausting. Mm-hmm. So yeah. if you can get your partner or whomever it is um, to go to a therapy session. Is there hope for a narcissistic narcissistic person? Is there hope for them? I think it depends on how much that person is willing to change. I mean, that's, that's always the thing, right? It's like the person has to want to change. Um, and if they're willing to stick it out and to go to more than one session and really talk about some hard things and maybe even get their own individual therapy, um, it's a long process because again, it's somebody that's done this behavior for so many years, you know, like, like I'm, I'm in, you know, close to my fifties. And so, you know, if, if you're changing behavior and you've been on earth for 50, 60 years, it's going to take a little bit to, to change things around. So if you have a partner that says, you know, I went to one session, I'm good. It usually takes a little more than that. So, um, or if they go to individual therapy, one thing you want to watch is if they come back and say, the therapist said, I'm fine. I don't need to come in. Um, or, um, there's not a person on earth that doesn't have some kind of issue. Like we all have issues, right? So, um, rarely will we say, yeah, you don't need to come in. You're fine. Or, um, or the person will say, oh, the therapist said you're the problem. That's not true. We would not say that. So, um, we really need to watch if someone, if your partner does say, yeah, I'm going to my own therapy, going to one session is not really a, a good faith effort. With couples that have decided to separate for whatever reason, and maybe, a man or woman is getting back into dating again. We talked about some of the red flags that, you know, check on the wait staff and also if they want to jump into a relationship. Is there anything else you would suggest for those people that are kind of putting their toes into the water of dating again and haven't dated in 30 years? What else should they be looking for that kind of says red flag? This is a problem. I think, again, write down what you're looking for in someone and get as detailed as possible. Uh, if you have cats, you obviously don't want to date somebody who doesn't like cats. So so put that at the top of the list. And, and asterisk the ones that you do not want to negotiate on. Like, is good to my kids. That's one that's just not negotiable, right? They have to treat your kids well. They have to treat you, you know, they have to treat you well. That's stuff you don't negotiate on. Um, so keep that in mind. And also consider doing things other than online dating to meet people. So meeting people in person, um, like I think of the meetup app where you can meet people. Like there's a group here that, you know, they meet for sushi and dogs. 
I mean, that sounds really weird, but they, they bring <laughs> they their dogs. They eat the dogs, yeah. Right. So, yeah, the dogs are not part of the whole process. You know, the dogs hang out at the restaurant and they eat sushi. So, I mean, there's groups for everybody. There's a paddle boarding group here. So, I mean, there's when you meet people in person, it may not be that you meet the love of your life in these groups, but you never know somebody that goes, hey, you know, I, I have a really nice, you know, sibling that I'd like to set you up with. Or, you know, hey, here's my friend so-and-so. So, it's getting to know people on that personal level. And I think that especially in the last two years, we've missed a lot of that because of the pandemic but now that things are opening up more again we can do that face-to-face contact and that is that doesn't mean that doing online isn't okay either i mean that's fine you know if you're meeting with like a, a group that you have interests with and i think when you have a common interest it's much easier to talk to people and get to know them and there's some common shared values because that's what really makes a, a good relationship is you have common values and beliefs whatever those are um and and i think that when we meet people in person um, instead of doing it online, you know, online is, is very, you know, fast. It's, it's, it can, there be, can be a lot of superficiality um, and you don't really get to know someone. And I think when you meet somebody in person first, there's something about that that lends itself to probably a healthier experience. So we need to remember stuff like Instagram and, and all the visual media, social media, that's all the, somebody's highlight reel. It's not their behind the scenes. There's yes. a lot of work that people put into putting up content. So, you know, you see the cute pictures of the, of the babies wearing their Halloween, you know, pumpkin outfits. You don't see the baby like, you know, vomiting all over the parents, right? <laughs> like they don't post photos like that. So, you know, you see all this stuff that looks like everybody's having this great life and you're not. And there are studies that show that the more social media that you consume, the greater your level of, of having depressive symptoms. Wow. Uh, because we do as people just have a natural tendency to compare. And, and a lot of that stuff's not real. And that's right. why I also tell people when you end something with somebody that's toxic, block their social media. Because what they will do is use the social media to hoover you back in. So they will post things like they will automatically find a new partner and then take them to all the places that you went as a way to kind of get you to contact them. Um, or they'll make like, you know, like veiled references to you and posts and like memes and everything. And, and it's really important to shut that off because that's the way that you kind of torture yourself is by looking at their social media. So it's important to block, block their phone number. Like, like you mentioned earlier, you know, block their emails, block any kind of social media. You may have to block again, their friends and family because they're trying to get you back into the fold. So it's really important to just kind of protect yourself. And that's part of self-care too, is to really limit your contact to that person on social media. My last question is is just something I'm curious about. With people who are emotionally abusive and narcissistic, how frequent does it become physically abusive? What takes that next step? It's a gradual step. And I think we really need to acknowledge that this is what's called a gateway form of abuse, verbal and, and emotional abuse, because a lot of times it does unfortunately lead to physical abuse. And it usually starts with someone blocking your exit from somewhere. So it's not somebody's hands on you. It's, it's blocking you from leaving a situation. So you know that walking away is the best option for you and they're blocking the exit. They're blocking. Uh, I had one client that had her husband stood blocking the stairs so she could not leave the house. That's a form of physical abuse. Getting too close to you, getting in your face. That's a form of physical abuse. And that's usually how it starts. Um, and they'll claim that, oh, well, you know, you push me first or you, you know, you tripped into me or whatever story they want to come up with. But that's how the physical abuse starts. It may not start with a hit or a slap. It starts with blocking your exit. And so we really need to pay attention to that because people say, well, I don't know. He didn't really put his hands on me. And I said, but it's still physical abuse if you're blocking somebody exiting, blocking somebody's car from leaving. So we need to pay attention to that. And whenever you have physical abuse, that increases lethality of the relationship, unfortunately. And the most, uh, 
the most violent time and the most time that you're more likely to face violence is if they figured out you're leaving or you've left. So it's really important that um, you consult with possibly your local domestic violence shelter. A lot of domestic violence shelters do have someone on staff that is trained just in uh, safety uh, measures that you can take to protect yourself. Uh, and also there's there, there's the, uh, your ability to possibly get a restraining order or an injunction against someone that has threatened you or your kids. And that's, again, something you would go to an attorney about. But one of the things you can do is pack a to-go bag in your car where you have um, you know, extra set of medicine, an extra set of clothes. Um, and that's something, if somebody finds you, you just go, you know what, it's just like if I'm out somewhere and I just need to change my clothes or whatever, take your pets with you because uh, the narcissist will use your pet against you. They will either mistreat your pet or they will say, oh, Fluffy misses you and I need to see you because Fluffy needs to reconnect with you. Uh, it's important to take your pets. And if a domestic violence shelter doesn't accept animals, a lot of veterinarians will will kind of have your dog board there or cat board there until you find a place to live and they'll charge you a low rate or, or for free. So that's an important thing too, that's to make good sure to know. Pets. That is that's good to really know because that's a, such a form of support too. If you're someone going yes. through this to have the pet, is such a form of, so my mm -hmm. question, my last question, you were talking about, you know, the cost and you do mention your book, um, different ways. How do you pay for all of this? So if you could just share with our listeners, what are some ways that these could be these um, things that you could go to these forms of therapy or help? Mm -hmm. What can be done to help pay for that? Sure. Uh, well, a lot of insurance plans do cover therapy now, but also you can go to sliding scale therapists where they, you can pay based on your income. And there are also therapists that will see you pro bono, maybe for specific events. Um, like I volunteer with an organization that, that I see veterans for free. So there's, there's, um, there's that too. Uh, their, um, family law attorneys, quite a few um, family law attorneys do pro bono work or what's called low bono, which they charge again a sliding scale. So there are services available. Um, domestic violence shelters usually do not charge uh, because they are funded through um, private organizations or through the community. Um, so those are accessible as well. Oh, and the other thing I mentioned is um, you will have abusers that blame you for the abuse. Uh, there's a projection thing that happens. This is, well, you were abusive towards me, or you started the physical abuse first. When someone's in your face and you push them away, that's self-defense. That's not active domestic violence. So I think we need to, to kind of look at that closely because someone will use that. A, a toxic person will use that to say like, you're so abusive. When you were just, you're, you're backed into a corner, that's a normal reaction to get somebody away from you. Because when we go into crisis mode, our brains don't let us pick if we're going to do fight, flight or freeze. It does whatever it thinks it needs to do to get you to stay alive. So it may have been that pushing somebody away was your brain's way of saying, you know what, this is how I'm going to be able to escape. That is not considered to be abuse. That's because you were being in a situation that you did not have a choice and you needed to get out. You were threatened. But if you have someone tell you, well, you were just as abusive, no, you were defending yourself. And I think that's a really important distinction to make. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for coming yeah. on. This information oh, my pleasure. is so important. Yeah, it's and so guys, important. Mm -hmm. Guys, please check out Healing from Toxic Relationships, 10 Essential Steps to Recover from Gaslighting, Narcissism, and Emotional Abuse. We will have the links in our show notes 
to Stephanie's website and to the book. And she has several other books on gaslighting and ADHD that are interesting as well. So we really appreciate your time, Stephanie. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Sarkis, for being on our show today. Make sure you check out our, our show notes on this episode and also follow us on social media. We are on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter and on LinkedIn even, and please get in touch with us. And Colleen and I are just thrilled that these women came together. We would love to do more events like this and get out to more women in different areas of the country and the world. (laughs) You know, (laughs) that would be really exciting. Plus, we did have uh, virtual tickets and we were so happy to see people. Yes, we had a lot of people attend virtually. And remember that our 12 days of holiday giveaways and our holiday gift guide will be coming up in the next month or two because it's time for the holidays again. Again. I can't believe it. What This year has just flown. Thank goodness. <laughs> I think because 2020 and 2021 were so slow that <laughs> this That's year true. is really moving really fast. So make sure you check us out. And thank you for listening and have a great day. 